people and I had the opportunity to do something pretty cool this past weekend. We got to go to Seattle. And I don't know, have any of you ever been to Seattle? Anyone in the room been to Seattle? Carmen Rodriguez, Kaylee Paxton, Josh Leisure back there. Um, <clears throat> it's pretty cool. Jill and I have been wanting to go to Seattle for a long time and had, didn't ever have an opportunity till now. And basically what happened was is someone decided to give us this gift. I don't know if you've ever heard of Pack Up and Go. But basically what, what they do is they like pay a certain amount of money and then this company like plans a trip for you but doesn't tell you where you're going. They just give you like hints and stuff and they tell you like, oh, you know, the weather at this location is going to be like this. And, you know, you may check out some coffee shops or you, you're going to be able to do a lot of walking. But that's like the only hints they give you. And then you show up at the airport and they have the, they've mailed you this envelope. And as soon as you get to the airport, you open the envelope and you find out where you're going. So Friday morning, we go to the airport and we open our envelope and we find out we're going to Seattle, which was super cool. And uh, it turned out to be perfect timing, too, because this weekend in Seattle apparently had very unseasonably amazing weather. So we were, we, got, we were basically a sandwich of rain. Like The rain was going before we got there, and there was no rain. And then as soon as we left, rain started again. And it was just like amazing weather. And the cool thing was is Jill and I, because it was, we knew it was going to be an amazing trip, we decided to kind of hold off on our wedding anniversary for a month or so. We got married October 10th, and so we decided to wait till this trip and celebrate our anniversary. So um, we used the trip for our anniversary. It was awesome. And I've uh, been married to Jill for nine years already. Nine. I don't want to tell you how old I am that that makes me. But it was, it was awesome. And it was cool, too, because, you know, I'm in Seattle, and we're here for the anniversary. I'm, we're kind of celebrating our, our love for each other. And so I was, I'm walking around Seattle, and thinking about that, thinking about my wife, thinking about marriage. And then I'm also thinking about tonight because um, tonight we're finishing up our series, Faith, Hope, and Love. And we're doing the, the last one, which is love, but it's also the greatest one. And so I'm thinking about tonight. I'm thinking about love. I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about marriage. And I've got all this in my mind as I'm walking through Seattle. Seattle's a really cool city. I mean, it's, it's old. It's, it's been, it was formed, I think, in like 1850. So it, it's one of those cities that has a lot of these like different neighborhoods that have completely different feels. You're walking through and you've got the, the pioneer uh, court. Um, and that's like the original, the original section of Pioneer Square. That's the name of it, Pioneer Square. It's the original part of Seattle. That is like this logging community and they're there for logging and for a gold rush. And then you move to like Capitol Hill and some of these other places, but you're walking around. And for me, I'm walking around and what struck me was as I'm thinking about love, as I'm thinking about young adults, I'm thinking about my wife. And then what strikes me is that everywhere I look, I'm seeing these different expressions of love. You know, you, you see maybe people like my wife and, and myself who are, who are there and they, they're celebrating their marriage. Or maybe I'm walking down the street and I see a family with their kids. Or I see a couple walking by. Or, and I see completely other expressions that maybe would stand out in West Texas. It was different. But the thing that was interesting is it, it was undeniable to me that every single one of these people that I'm seeing, no matter what they're beliefs are, no matter what their stage of life is, they're all capable of love. All capable of love. 
And it, it was kind of like shocking, not shocking. It's something that you kind of like know in your head. But I think in my youth, I might have looked at certain situations or looked at people who, who, you know, are like there was this one lady I met who she was a bar, she was a barista. And you could just tell she's like not very happy at all about her life. And maybe in the past, I might have looked at that situation and been like, uh, she doesn't really know what love is or she's not, she doesn't have any love in her life or when I was younger. But then it just, it's like God's been dealing with me with this stuff and I realized, no, we're all capable of love. But the thing that if you polled everybody in Seattle or here or anywhere else, you might, you get tons of different definitions kind of, of what love is. But it's undeniable that we're all capable of love. And it kind of, I was sitting there, I'm watching all this stuff out and it kind of reminded me of that old philosophy tale, I think it was Plato who came up with it, but it's the, the blind men and the elephant. Do you remember this in school? Where three blind men, they bring them to this elephant. They've never been around an elephant before, that, and they put them at different positions on the elephant, and they ask them, okay, you describe what, a, what an elephant is. And each blind person, one's at the tail, one's at the trunk, one's at one of the legs, and they all have different definitions. And they're all correct, you know, experiences of the elephant. You know, the one that's touching the trunk describes it as a snake. And based on his experience, that was true. But if he had his eyes open to see the whole picture, no one in their right mind would say that an elephant was like a snake. And so then it dawned on me that these people, all all of us, not these people, like the people in Seattle, but all of us have these experiences with love. And then most of us then turn around and ascribe that to the entire definition of what love is. Just like the blind men with the elephant. And so it dawned on me, like, we need, it's not that we're arguing, and sometimes Christians, we get into this too. We try to argue over, we almost want to have a monopoly on what love is. We, we're, we're the ones who have real love. Those people over there, these ones over there, this religion over here, they don't have real love. Only Christians have real love. I don't, you know, very few people walk around saying that literally just like that. But if you listen to like the subtext of what they're saying, that's how they live. That we have this exclusive claim to love. But I don't think that that even matches what the Bible's saying. But what we are arguing is we know what the, we have our eyes opened. We can see because of Jesus, we can see the full picture of what love is. We're not limiting it to this one, these, these experiences. And so tonight, we're going to be going through 1 John. It's chapter 4, and we're, we're just going to be kind of working our way through this passage. 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 4, 7 through 21. And um, I think God's got some, th- some interesting lanes we're going to be going down. Um, and as you're open up there, I'm going to keep going. But basically, it just dawned on me. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about the elephant. I'm thinking about love. I'm looking at all these people. And it just, it's, we all experience love. We all feel love. We all want love. We're all capable of acting in love. We're all, we're all capable of experiencing it. But we need to know is the definition. And not surprisingly, if what the Bible says is true and that God made everything that we can see, everything that we can experience, then love is a part of that too. And that means that God is the author of love, and he probably has something to say about it. And the Bible does have quite a bit to say about love. 
And so that's what we're going to look at. Verse 7 starts this way. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We're made to love. We're made to love. God made, that's a, it's intrinsic to what it means to be a human being, is to love. That's part of how we were designed. And so to me, it, it takes me back, like reading that and thinking about being a child of God, it takes me back to Genesis. And if and many, many scholars, many preachers, all they talk about is that you can look back to the, the first few chapters of the Bible in Genesis, and you can see all of the major themes that are talked about in Scripture expressed there over and over again. And it explains to me this thing, this idea, like we see this contrast right here, that for love, for anyone, let me see, anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. And I think to me is we both are in both locations. We're all capable of loving and we're all capable of not loving. And we kind of live in this place back and forth. Right. Like we might be in one situation, very loving in a real way. And then another situation, not at all. And we see this this compare and contrast. And it reminds me of Genesis, because in Genesis, we have this picture of God made the heavens and the earth. And he formed man out of the dust of the ground. And he formed mankind to be his sons and his daughters. And so what does that do? That tells us right then and right there that each and every one of us, given our nature, given the very way we were made. Is it's intrinsic to us to love. But we all know the story, right? We all know the story that somewhere along the line, after somewhere, some length of time after creation, man decided to rebel. And we abandoned what God made us to be. And through that process, through the fall, through sin, we lost our father. And yet we were still capable. Our true nature was to be children of God. And so we're simultaneously able to love to be a child of God while simultaneously being able to not love and to not be a child of God. But also the thing that's interesting about Genesis is it reminds me is like this idea that one of the first things we see that God does right after he makes all of creation is it says that God planted a garden. And he planted this garden and he, he made this perfect place filled with all these different plants and animals and fruits. And he tells Adam and Eve that they can go and they can eat from whatever tree they want. But then the, the subtext of the scripture also implies that outside of this garden is there's chaos and disorder and there, there's a wildness out there. And he sets it up perfectly and it's this perfect, pure relationship between Adam and Eve and God where there, it's perfect love, pure love, undefiled love. And then God says, hey, I want you to go and subdue the earth. Make dominion over the earth. And, and there's an implication there, too. It's not just this, like, metaphorical, spiritual idea of going and subduing the earth. There was, like, very tangible things there. He's basically saying, hey, I want you to go produce the earth, like, cultivate the earth, literally. Like, go plant things, grow things, do all this stuff. And what's interesting is even with the fall, you can kind of see literally in history, man has taken some of these plants, these wild fruits, wild vegetables, 
and we've cultivated things out of it. We've, through generations and generations of, of breeding these animals, not animals, these plants together, we've changed fundamentally how these fruits and vegetables look, taste, produce, all these things. So you can like look at it. You can see these pictures of like what an original wild banana looks like compared to our modern banana or watermelons or oranges and apples and all this other stuff. Corn is one of the most shocking. Like corn is a, is basically a grass. And original corn was this grass-like substance that had in the, the corn part was literally like this hard, almost inedible, like green bean looking thing. And then over thousands of years, we've ended up with the corn that we all know and we all love and we all love to eat at Thanksgiving, which just so happens to be this. Bro, bro, Americans eat corn. Texans eat corn. Cornbread? Do you not love cornbread? There's corn in cornbread, bro. Anyway. Um, But we've done this thing, and it's pretty cool. Like, so... Even in a way, even in a fallen state, we've been literally doing some of the things that God's done. And a lot of these wild fruits, they, you know, not only did we make them sweeter and taste better but and bigger, or in these plants produce more yield of fruits, but we also even changed the structure of the plant. Like, if you were to come across an apple field in the wild, not an apple field, an apple tree, there wouldn't be a field. There wouldn't be a field. I don't even know if a field, there is no such thing as an apple field. There's an orchard, orchard. But if you came into a field, that's what I meant to say, and you found a wild apple tree, it wouldn't be like the apple you find at the store. You would, it would be smaller. Um, it wouldn't taste as good. It would be less sweet. And actually, as you reach to try to grab this apple, you might get stuck because there's going to be thorns on this tree and cultivated modern apple trees do not have thorns on them. And we've done this with a lot of different plants. We've done this with oranges. We've done it with apples. We've done it. Almost every wild fruit has thorns. And most scientists say this is because it helps these wild plants protect themselves against birds and other predators who would come and eat their fruit before it's time because the fruit is necessary for the plants to keep going. Right. And so I'm thinking about, I'm kind of know all this stuff. And then I'm sitting on the plane. I'm sitting on the plane coming back from Seattle. And I'm, I've already written this message for love and stuff. And, and I'm kind of going through it. And I'm listening to this album by John Mark McMillan. It's Mercury and Lightning. And he has a song on there called Enemy Love. And there's this one line in the song. And it goes like this. Did you give up your body? Did you give your body up just to suffer? For my savage love. My savage love. And I'm, I'm listening to that. I'm thinking about this message. And it's like all of a sudden, boom, like these light bulbs start going off in my head. Fireworks. I'm like, I'm getting, and savage, I'm like thinking about like, like it rang true to me as I'm like really kind of processing this lyric. And I'm trying to figure out why is that? And I started thinking about the word savage because God, in, and in perfect state, we have this, like, perfect love exchange between us and God. And then the fall happens, and we get kicked out of the garden. And we're still capable of loving, but I think all of us would agree, even with Jesus, our love doesn't compare to God's pure and undefiled love. 
It's kind of, it's savage. It's wild is the word that came to my mind. It's a wild love. It's unpredictable. And all of a sudden, it just I started thinking about these plants. I started thinking about cultivating things. And I realized, like, we as human beings have taken these wild plants and we've cultivated them and made these fruits better tasting, more productive, all this stuff. But we as human beings have gone in reverse. We started cultivated. We started exactly the way we should. And then when we rebelled and we got kicked out of the garden into the wild, we became wild. We became wild. And our fruit, our love that we were supposed to produce that was perfect and pure and undefiled, what did it become? Less sweet. Less productive. Less efficient. And just like those wild fruits, we produced thorns in our life too. And I think it's interesting. Is another fundamental aspect of our relation of our thing is love is not something you can do singularly. It's by its very nature needs other beings to interact with. It's not love otherwise. And so, in order to interact, we have to engage with people, right? And so, something that in order to feel love, exchange love, you need to be in contact with other people. But when we have savage and wild love, what happens? Just like when you tried to reach for that apple fruit and that wild tree trying to find some fruit, trying to get something good from it, you end up getting pricked by thorns because of the thorns of wildness and sin in our life. But God, being a good gardener, was not satisfied to leave us in our wild state. And so if like a farmer who's or gardener who's left and come back to a field and found that it's been overrun by wild plants, he's going to get to work. He's going to start taking back that field. He's going to start taking back dominion over that crop. And he started that. And we see going further in verse nine, first John chapter four says this, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. And so he gets to work. He starts taking back the field. And how does he do that? He first off, he does it by showing us what real love is that pure undefiled, because our love might have become savage and wild, but his didn't. And so what does he do? He shows us through his actions that he was incapable of having this wild, uncivilized love. And he does his pure, and what does he do? Is a perfect love, which is laying down your life for someone else. And not just someone else that loves you back, but actually laying down your life for someone who doesn't love you and is incapable of loving you the way you do. He does that. He starts saying that. And Jesus comes. And of course, we all know that story, right? Jesus comes to the earth. He comes and he dies for us. He sheds his blood for our sins. We're renewed. We're restored. We come back. Claiming life. He starts taking back that field. But claiming ownership over a field isn't enough necessarily to start making that field an orchard again. You got to start getting to work. You got to start pruning. You got to start cultivating. You got to start working the land. And so he does that in our life. We go further. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. 
and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them and they live in God. We know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. I think it's interesting. One thing to highlight from this passage is is the part where John talks about that no one has seen God. And what it did is it reminded me of this idea that it's, it's clear in scripture and it's crazy that the like the Jewish people who are writing the Bible are viewing God this way, but they basically this theme about God is that God is completely different than us. Completely different, completely other, set apart. No one is like him. And in modern science, they they use all these other kind of words for it and in like the fourth dimension. Like these beings that are from the fourth dimension, and we're three-dimensional beings, and there's four-dimensional beings, and these beings are completely different than us. And it kind of like reading that passage, the first thing that came to my mind is interstellar. Who's seen Interstellar? Anybody? Yeah. I love Interstellar. I love because I love space movies and exploration and all this stuff. But there's this one part that it gets kind of gets kind of out there. We all know what that is, right? It's like the other scientists, the scientists, the Matthew McConaughey's characters, work, I forget, Anne Hathaway's character, is like talking about how love transcends the third dimension. That love can cross time and gravity and all this other stuff, right? And you're, I'm like, listen to this movie. And then it gets to the crazy part that these evolved humans, like, like are able to, through love, create this tesseract thing where Matthew McConaughey can interact with every stage of his daughter's life. And you're like, what is going on here? Like, and I still like the movie. I'm not dogging on the movie, but on one level, I was like, this is just, we've gone, you've jumped the shark. But then as I'm reading this passage and I'm thinking through it, I'm kind of like wondering, like, it's kind of true. And what do I mean by that is, is as if God is completely different, completely set apart, completely different than you and I, we should have no ability of our own volition to interact with him. Because he's completely different than us. And yet what this scripture is talking about is this idea that through love, we're able to interact and communicate with God a being that's completely set apart, completely different than us. And so in some ways, Interstellar is kind of prophetic. We're able to like transcend our normal state, this this temporal bound on the earth state, and interact with a God who's completely different and unique through love. So love, on top of like being integral to like who we are and what we do and how we act, it allows us to interact with the God of the universe. So it helps us interact. We're going to go further. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because We live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, 
How can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believer. The thing that stood out for that passage for me is that God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. And what struck me about that is that goes back to that idea that when I was talking about that God got to work and he bought back the field, but now he's got to start actually taking back the field, pruning and shaping. We got this idea that Jesus just says over and over again, like, love is the greatest commandment. And so love is not only just integral to us, but it's this commandment. But what struck me about this is I used to still get caught up in this idea of commandments and like, oh, so like we have to obey these things. And if we don't obey them, we're going to get punished. We got to earn this stuff. And, but it just dawned on me that, no, it's not that. It's just like it says. And as we live in God, which if we live in God means that we love God. But once we live in him, our love grows more perfect. And so what God's doing is by, by love and through when we engage in love, we're actually engaging in sanctification. We're engaging in discipleship. And discipleship and discipline and sanctification, this is that process by which God pruning comes in and starts taking your wild and savage love and making it look more and more over time like his perfect, pure, undefiled love. And so he makes it not just something that we should do. He actually makes it a command. Not because you have to do it in order to earn his love, because he gave us his full love before we were ever doing anything to begin with. He's making a command so that we know the seriousness of it, that it is by this avenue and this avenue alone that we're made perfect through the Lord, made into disciples, made into return back to our former state of this pure, undefiled relationship of love with God. Love is the work of the faith. Jesus gave this command, and it's famous, the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And if we look back, and Jesus says that basically, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, he says, all the law is fulfilled with those two things. Because if you love God and you love your neighbor, you will never violate the law. And so I'm telling you this, is if you refuse to love, you refuse to be a disciple. You refuse to be a disciple. And I think the interesting thing is, is that as this perfect love has worked through us, as God is shaping and cutting and pruning our life, he's removing those thorns we talked about before. And as I was like thinking about it, is there's this, this like almost, it dawned on me that I used to just think of sin as this idea that, oh, that this is an innate thing within us that we just, we just love evil for some reason. We just want to rebel. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes it is fun, for lack of a better word, to do the wrong thing or to sin. But it dawned on me that just like these wild fruits out in the field that, that cover themselves in thorns to protect themselves, that you could make the argument that most sin in our lives comes from a misapplied self-preservation, needing to protect ourselves from the world. 
And so we, 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 re- we return anger, right, to someone when they've harmed us. We turn anger. That's a thorn. We just attack somebody with our thorns who've tried to interact with us, but they've interacted with us in a wrong way. And so we get angry. And so we hurt them. Or maybe we see someone else and we interact with them and we should be loving, but then we become greedy instead. And that's a thorn. You can make these arguments that almost every sin, and that's not every sin. I'm not saying that in every case it's some kind of self-defense, self-preservation thing. But I think you can make the argument that that most of the time it is. And that's because we're all made in God's image. Every single human being is made in God's image. Every single human being was made to love. And every one of us that are not walking in Jesus, and sometimes even when we do, we still live in this state of wildness and savageness where we feel like we have to protect ourselves. And these wild plants, they protect themselves because they don't have a gardener. They don't have a gardener that's protecting them from a predator who's going to come and eat their fruit. They don't have someone who's coming and watering them. They don't have, they're completely exposed. They're completely vulnerable. And human beings, were never, we weren't designed to be on our own. So what do we do? We, we make thorns through sin as some kind of self-protection. And what do we do? We hurt other people through it, and they hurt us. Because we can't, we can't stop engaging with people. It's fundamental to who we are. You can try to run. You can try to hide. You can try to go live as a hermit. But fundamental to a human being is to engage with someone else and to engage in love. And too often, love, we're reaching into wild fruits and getting hurt. And this idea of loving and discipleship and listening to the Lord, what is he doing? He's coming. He's pruning. And he's cutting out those thorns out of our life. He's cutting out that sin. Not so that, so that we can love the world. And when the people who are lost and who are still savage and still wild and they come and they engage with us, yeah, we might get pricked still, but they're not going to get pricked by us. Just like Jesus, right? Jesus literally got pierced with nails, thorns. He had a crown of thorns put on his head. But he didn't harm us. And through that love, through that transformational, true love, that's the definition of love, right? Is laying down your life, exposing yourself vulnerabilities to people who can hurt you and not hurting them back. That's what love is. That's the love that's eternal. And God wants to restore us back to that. And it just, man, this has like been revolutionary to me. For sure. Like, because I'd, ne- I'd never thought of like sin this way. I'd never thought of love this way. I'd never made the connections about this idea that sometimes when I'm reacting out of sin, it's really just to try to preserve myself because I'm not fundamentally trusting God. Because if I recognize that I'm one, again, back in the fold, back in the care of my father who can protect me, I don't have to have thorns. I don't have to defend myself. I have someone who's watching and guarding over me. And I can re- be free to return back to my former state. And the thing that's, um, that's the final thought here, though, guys, is this. Is, yeah, sometimes those thorns can protect us. I'm not going to deny that. Sometimes it can preserve you. But there's one thing that thorns cannot protect you from. Is when drought comes. Yeah, thorns can protect you from predators and other things that might come to try to steal, kill, and destroy. But when you're cut off as a plant from the source of life and water, you will die. Even a cactus, who's, which well-versed in surviving in environments with no water, will eventually die and perish 
without water. And who's the source of water and life? Jesus. He said to himself, if you had known, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. You would have never thirsted again. And so maybe this idea of defense and protection of sin can protect you for a short time, but eventually it will catch up with you and you will perish. And only those that have been found in the care of the true gardener can make it through the drought. Why? Because the gardener has a source of a well of water that will never run dry and will be able to continue to water you and grow you, shape you, and will produce more and more and more fruit. That's what we're called to, guys. These are the, that's that eternal love. That's that pure, undefiled love that God has called us to. So I want to finish this series. We started with 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to just finish by reading that passage on love. And then we're going to close in prayer. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13 says this. And it's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to just listen to it. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, and is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see these things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then when we, we will see everything with perfect clarity, All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for the fact that, Lord, you love us even when we were incapable of loving you back. And Lord, that you so willingly came and you made yourself vulnerable to to being put into pain, Lord God, by us, to be cut and pierced by us and by our sin and by our own desire to preserve and protect ourselves. And yet you were unwilling to leave us by the side. You've called us to love and to be returned back to what you were this us for, to love you and love others. Lord, we pray for this, a revelation of this, Lord God, that this would go deep within us, Lord, that we would be a people that love wholeheartedly. Lord, that the world, when they come and they interact with us, Lord God, that we would no longer fail like we have so many times before. But when they come and they want to interact with us, that we wouldn't put our guard up, we wouldn't put our thorns up, we wouldn't put our protections up, Lord, but we would allow 
your pure, undefiled love to flow through us and to touch and change hearts. Lord, allow these three eternal things, faith, hope, and love, to produce the good work within us that you called us to. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.